0: Ladies, thank you all for leading us in worship. That was an absolutely wonderful job and very appropriate song selection for our text this morning. Uh, we are glad you're here, especially on a, on, a, on a holiday weekend. We have the true and the faithful here who have chosen to actually come to corporate worship. Well done. If you're listening online, shame, shame. Um, we will be in Hebrews 11. Um, before we get there and, and pray, I, I would like, y'all, go ahead and stand again and greet those around you. If you see someone that you don't recognize, make sure they, they know they're welcome. you so can make your way back to your seats let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive into the text Lord we we come to you now uh, we thank you for this morning uh, you are a great God indeed kingdoms fall before you there is none who is stronger uh, than our God and it is our God before whom we gather this morning as a humble people uh, eager to hear from you, Lord. Lord, specifically this morning, we'd like to um, pray for another pastor, uh, Pastor um, Chet Haney and his wife, Terry, at Highland Terrace. I um, pray that you would be blessing them this morning abundantly, that he has enjoyed you in, in the preparation of, of uh, the, the word, and that uh, as he preaches, and as they gather, and as they sing, and as they pray, that that body is, is very, very blessed. I pray that... Um, You would allow them to continue to be bright and salty and aromatic in our community and and do all they can for the forward movement of of the kingdom of God. And I'm thankful for the ways that we partner in that. And I pray that you would bless their time this morning. We also want to pray for Jeff Daly on city council and just pray uh, pray for his marriage as well and pray uh, that he would fear the Lord and that that would play into the way that he serves his role on uh, city council. Um, that he would make decisions with others um, with those that he that he, that he serves with um, for the well-being of our community and that you would um, encourage them in that manner lord we also pray for those who aren't with us this morning as they're they're traveling um, we do pray for for safe travels uh, for them we pray that even as families are gathered uh, elsewhere um, that that this sunday morning um, they would be enjoying you uh, maybe it's in a new setting maybe it's in nature maybe it's over the breakfast table but I pray that shepherds are still shepherding, and that you would allow that time to be um, fruitful as they rest, and I pray that you would allow them safe travels as they return. Lord, this morning as we consider uh, the faith photograph of Barak, uh, we pray that you would tell us what you want us to hear. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Um, if this is your first time with us, um, we are continuing in a series titled Faith Photographs. It's in Hebrews 11. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 11. And this is essentially the, what, what's been called the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, where we're walking through this hall and we're seeing all these photographs lining the walls, and they're sort of the heroes of our faith, those who are mentioned and given to the Hebrew church as encouragement in, in their setting um, there in Rome as, as a new Christian church. And so the next photograph we see is that of Barak. Now, he may be less familiar to, to many of us because he's not, he may not have the popular of the popularity of, of a Gideon type like last week. So, so pay close attention to the story this morning and look at the details because there's, there's a lot there. The, the photograph of Barak. So our roadmap for the morning, you're already in Hebrews 11. We're going to start with our text, and then we're going to jump immediately over to Judges chapter 4, which is where the story of Barak takes place. Not Numbers, Judges chapter 4, which is where the story takes place. And then we're going to consider seven points of application for the Hebrew church And for ourselves. So, Hebrews 11, verse 32 through 34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. That being made strong in weakness and becoming mighty in war to put foreign armies to flight is particularly what we are going to be talking about this morning as we consider Barak's faith photograph. So turn over to Judges chapter 4. Some of, these, uh, some of these narratives are, are a bit longer, and this one is not. This one's short. Um, Judges chapter 4 includes the entire story of Barak and, and what was faithful and why he's in this hall of faith. And then um, chapter 5 is a song that Deborah and Barak wrote recounting what happened in chapter 4. So we're going to work through um, these, these 24 verses together. Uh, in chapter 4, and and just taking it in as a narrative. And when we read something like this, something that we've encouraged you in a thousand times before, is to import your senses. Like, what what does this look like? What does it smell like? Who are the people? What are the repeated things? Who are the characters? What are they doing? Really try to climb into this story as we walk through it to make the most of it, to understand why God would use this as an encouragement to us and to the Hebrews church. So Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heraheshethahagoyim. <laughs> I've been working on that all week. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years years. So what we see here at the beginning of this narrative is the same cycle that we saw last week. These are just a few verses, a few chapters before what we saw with the cycle of Gideon, where God's people do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, and God gives them into the hand of a neighboring nation where they're taken captive and they're oppressed. They cry out to God in their oppression. God sends a judge to give them salvation, peace, and peace and rest. And then After some years, the judge dies, and they return to the cycle of they did what was evil in the sight of God. They get taken captive. They cry out to God. He gives a judge. And this cycle goes on 12 times in the book of Judges. And so it's the same thing this morning here at the beginning of chapter 4. Look at verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. So, this is unique. This is a little bit different from our previous stories. The judge here is a female named Deborah, and she is a very, very wise female. But our faith photograph is of Barak. So, I want you all to see and make sure we're clear. Barak's not a judge. That's different from last week. We're looking at Gideon, who was one of the judges. Here we're looking at the faith photograph of Barak, but he's actually a leader in the army under the prophetess judge figure of Deborah. So it's a little different from last week. Look at verse 6. She went and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000, from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun and I will draw out Sisera the general of Jabin's army to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops and I will give you give him into your hand so the prophetess judge here in our story knows what God has already commanded of Barak as a good leader and a good judge she's aware of the movement of her enemies and she's aware of the movement of her God. What I want us to see this morning is God's particular command that Deborah's referring to that has been spoken to Barak, and it has three parts, okay? The command is, Barak, gather 10,000 of your men at Mount Tabor. The second part of it is, I, God, will draw out Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, who's been oppressing you for 20 years, cruelly oppressing you for 20 years. I will draw him out and bring him to you. And, and God goes on to say, and I'm going ha- to bring him to you with all those chariots that you're scared of and all those strong, mighty men. I'm going to bring them all to you. Sometimes we have situations where it's like, God, you're bringing a lot to me. You're kind of bringing a lot here. And, and, but God's clear about what it is up front. And then the third part is, is beautiful, it's a promise where God says, I will give him into your hand. I will give him into your hand. So this is the message of God to Barak as communicated through the prophetess judge, Deborah. Now look at verse 8. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali into Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So Barak has his conditions of obedience. If you all obey, if you go with me. And Deborah agrees, and they move forward in faithfulness, even though it's a little bit sloppy um, they're up front, and so they're moving forward according to God's command. Look at verse 11. Now Heber, Heber, however you want to say it, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oaks of Zanonim, which is near Kadesh. Look at verse 12. When Sisera, was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, because Sisera is aware of the movement of his enemies as well. When he was told this, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Heresheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot like a coward. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hereshith Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. This is the faithful part of this faith photograph. Much like Gideon's story, this is where Barak does what God has asked him to do, and he puts himself in harm's way, knowing that his victory was completely dependent upon the hand of the Lord interceding for him. He's putting himself in a situation that God has told him to be in, knowing that I will not get out of this situation alive. I will not bring victory to God. I will not bring freedom to our people if God doesn't do something bigger than what I'm able to do. I am weak. God is strong, and I'm dependent upon him. And he moves in faithfulness, and they whoop up on the Canaanite army. Remember, this isn't just a random scuffle in a schoolyard or something like that. If you're thinking, oh, there's, you know, they just kind of fought each other, and it was, it was just a small thing. It was no small thing. It was massive. They'd been oppressed cruelly for 20 years by the Canaanite army. So he moves out knowing he's totally dependent upon the Lord, and the Lord gives him victory. Now look at verses 17 through 21. I kind of think the story's been a little boring up to this point, if I'm going to be honest. I'm like, okay, cool, a lady, you, you, you wouldn't go without the lady, and you're a warrior, and okay, same thing happened last week. This is Okay, let's read verses 17 through 21. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera, Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, a hardened warrior who has cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years. She comes out of her tent to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a little drink of milk and covered him up. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, just just say no. But Jael, Jael, The wife of Abar took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. (laughs) Did you see that coming? If you hadn't heard that story, you probably didn't see that coming. That's probably a surprise. We're not going to expound on it too much. We have our children in here with us today, but this is part of our story. We don't have coloring sheets to go along with it. (laughs) Who saw this coming? This tent-dwelling, crafty warrior lady brought the commander of the Canaanite army into her tent, gave him a glass of milk, tucked him into bed, waited until he was sleeping like a little baby, and then boom, tent peg. So I don't want to give a lot of commentary on it. If kids run in here, I probably would, because we could run with this for about 10 minutes. But my favorite part is the commentary of the scripture, which I'll stick with. So he died. You think? Look at verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come! (laughs) She's excited. I will show you the man whom you were seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Victory for God's people in a circumstance that was very unlikely where they would see victory after 20 years of oppression. And the way that it plays out is certainly not quite how we may have thought it would play out if we're looking at the scenario up front. So, through the faithful leadership of Barak, Israel prevailed against the Canaanite army, and the result was that after having been oppressed and enslaved for 20 years... Now guess what they're going to get? They're going to experience 40 years of peace and rest. This is a major victory. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around this because everyone in this room was born into freedom. A freedom that, that has not always been experienced throughout the ages. So it's hard for us to know what it would have been like to be oppressed for 20 years and pressed on, and it was cruel, and then we get freedom for 40 years. But you can rest assured, this is a sweet relief for Israel to go from 20 years of cruel oppression to 40 years of peace and rest. So what is it about this faith photograph that would have been encouraging to the Hebrews in Rome? Remember the, 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 the Hebrew church in Rome, they're looking at Rome, They've got their new Christian faith. It doesn't line up with Judaism. There's a lot of things that, that there's, um, there's, there are many pressing against them. How, how would this encourage them, and how would this be beneficial to us today? And I'm, I'm going to offer seven things that I think we can consider this morning. The first thing is this. Good leadership helps God's people to move faithfully. Good leadership helps God's people to move faithfully. We find this in the opening line of Deborah and Barak's song in the next chapter. Look at chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 2. This is the song of Deborah and Barak after they have defeated Sisera and Jabed and the Canaanites. It says, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, and that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. That's the opening line of their song. I I would ask you, would that be the opening line of your song? I think I'd be tempted to start with, oh, look at JL. Did anybody see what JL did? That was amazing, the thing that JL just did. And then I would continue with the song. But they say, the leaders took the lead, and the people offered themselves willingly to God. And that's the opening line to their song. So for the Hebrew church and for us, it's an encouragement to those who are called to lead, that they need to step up and they need to lead faithfully especially in the face of resistance and wickedness and adversity. And as well, the response to good leadership is a people who offer themselves willingly. They go hand in hand. If there's no one who offers themselves willingly, leadership is not of great benefit. And if there are only people who offer themselves willingly and there's no leadership, then the people who offer themselves willingly are not of great benefit biblically, but they go together what this tells us is that when God's leaders lead and God's people offer themselves to God, the enemies of God fall and the glory of God prevails. In this body, we believe in a plurality of leadership. As we read through the book of Acts, we read through First and 2 Timothy, we read through Titus, we believe that there's a plurality, an abundance of men who are leading who are elders, who are deacons, and who are shepherds. And so there are leadership roles all throughout the body where you're called to lead your family, where there's deacons who serve and provide practical relief for the body, and they can also hold the faith and the mystery of it um, with wisdom and be able to expound upon that. And there's elders who pray and tend to the word and teach and preach, and that's how we move around here. And our hope in doing that is not to do the work of ministry for you, but to prepare the saints for the work of ministry so that the saints, the church, us together, offer ourselves willingly to God. This would have been hugely important for the Hebrew church because it's uncertain. They're looking at Rome. They're not sure how do we move forward. And the reality for them as they look at the story would have been that the leaders took the lead in Israel and the people offered themselves willingly. It looks like we need to make sure we have leaders, that they're doing what God tells them to do, and that we as a people offer ourselves willingly or we will not continue as a church. It's very important. Leaders leading and people offering themselves to God. The second thing we'll consider this morning is that it's often the case that a faith photograph isn't an individual portrait, but a picture that includes other people. It's often the case that these faith photographs are not just an individual portrait, but a picture that includes other people, particularly a picture that includes community. I think that if we're honest, Barrick doesn't really look all that impressive in this story. I was struggling with this and saying, okay, it's his faith photograph. He was the one mentioned. What, what can I do to, to clarify and to, to run with that and not, not lose sight of it? Because I, I, te- I read chapter 4, and I'm like, Barak was all right, but Deborah and Jael, those ladies were solid. So why was Barak mentioned? And so I go to a commentary, and the first thing the commentary says is, it's a wonder that it's not a faith photograph of Deborah or Jael. I'm like, well, thanks for that. But the reality is that this faith photograph is a faith photograph that would have you look and realize it's not a one-man show. It includes other people. It includes the community where God has placed you. Maybe Deborah and Jael were in the foreground and Barak was somewhere in the background in his faith photograph. Maybe it's like that for you. Maybe it doesn't need, you don't need to be the guy up in the foreground you know, posed like a king, but maybe there's some ladies in front of you who have helped you to move in faithfulness. And you're in the background. So here we see community. And so I think we learned a few things from this. What we learned from this is to be thankful that God uses leadership and community to offset our weaknesses. Be thankful that God uses leadership and community to offset our weaknesses. But don't put your faith in leadership and community. See, when Barrett gave the ultimatum to Deborah, and he he said, remember he said, if you go with me, I'll go. But if not, I'm not going to go. He's revealing That his obedience to God was contingent upon the presence of Deborah, and that that wasn't necessary. He had had his command from the Lord, and he's saying, I will obey that command only upon this contingency that I'm putting in place myself. I need this. I want this. And so what we're learning here is it's good to have leadership and community offset our weaknesses, but we don't put our faith in, in the leadership and in the community. We put our faith in the God of the leadership and the God of the community. It was often the case for Israel to try to put their faith in God's messengers than in God. So what we need good leadership. Rest assured, we need good leadership. But we must not put our faith in it. To do so may lead us to compromise in areas where we should be moving forward in obedience. As well, like Deborah and Barak, we should bless the Lord when we see good leadership, and we should bless the Lord when we see God's people offering themselves to him willingly. They wrote a song about it. We should write songs about when we see leadership's moving well, people are offering, them, offering themselves to God, we're moving in God's strength to be victorious, we should note that. We should respond and worship. Um, Psalm 9 talks about how we recount the deeds of the Lord as an act of wholehearted worship, which means that we're not wholehearted in our worship if we're not working hard to pay attention to what God is doing and how he's moving. And those are two areas where we should be blessing the Lord when we see it. The third thing this morning... That we take from this, this narrative, this text, this story, is that sometimes God will call you to something in which you have previously failed. Sometimes God will call you to something in which you have previously failed. I'm aware that some of us sitting here right now may be like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling this. Because some of us hate weakness, right? Some of us just hate weakness. We don't want anyone to see it. We don't want anyone to know about it. We want to hide it. We want to be rid of it. And then some of us hate it when you bring up something we failed at in the past. But what we're seeing here is sometimes God will call us to something in which we have previously failed. I want you to consider, remember those iron chariots that were mentioned, the 900 iron chariots, and 20 years of oppression by the Canaanites? Turn to Judges 119. As I was reading through, saw this and thought, man, these iron chariots have already been spoken of before chapter 4. And in Judges 1.19, it says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. These chariots proved to be a challenge for Israel. They were like the tanks of the era. They were strong, they were agile, they were hard to take over it was a 1 to 10 ratio of 10,000 soldiers and 900 chariots with soldiers and and they were they were agile and they were big and they were they were hard to overcome and those chariots had proven certain defeat to Israel in previous battles and god saying barak take 10,000 men i will bring sisera and his chariots you can almost just see see him cringe like not the chariots and all of his mighty warriors which had proven to be defeat to israel in previous battles So after having lost already to the chariots, and after having spent 20 years in oppression as captives, God tells them that it's time to stand up to the chariots and to the captors. For the Hebrew church and for ourselves, this should cause us to rely not on our own track record, but on God who is sovereign. I think some of us are sitting here saying, Man, I have failed in so many areas. I have failed in marriage. I failed as a parent. I failed in my work ethic. I failed in school. I failed in my diet. I I mean, we, we can be just like one thing after another on our list of things in which we have failed. But we need to remember that our future ability is not contingent upon our past failures. If we're not careful, that can sound like a motivational speech, right? Your future ability is not contingent upon your past failures. You're strong. You're a winner. No, God's a winner. God's strong. And He can help you to succeed in areas where you have failed in the past. And I think that's going to be necessary for the Hebrew church. I think it's going to be necessary for us. Because all of us have failed somewhere. And all of us are intimidated by something. And all of us are concerned about our ability to move in faith in some areas. And God here says, I am God. Your future ability is not contingent upon your past failures. The fourth thing, which goes well with number three, is that sometimes our enemy's strength will prove to be their weakness. This is so encouraging to me. If anyone watches the news, it's not encouraging. All you see is people with more and more power, more and more weapons, more and more hate, more and more wickedness, wanting to do harm to other people. And when I look at this and I see how God moved above the Canaanites, how last week he moved above the Midianites, And then this week, particularly how we can see that our enemy's strength will sometimes prove to be their weaknesses. The song, actually, in chapter 5, go ahead and turn there, reveals what happened to those chariots, because we don't get a whole lot of it in chapter 4. In chapter 4, we just see that they prevailed, but in chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, we see actually what happened there. The kings came, 519, the kings came, they fought. They fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan, at Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought; from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. That torrent comes from heavy rains, so. These char- this, um, this, this preparation here as these chariots were coming, God readied his people. God provided them with leadership. God provided them with promises. And then they didn't know they needed it, but God provided them with a really heavy rain. And it swept away these big heavy chariots. He provided them with a heavy rain, and those iron chariots sunk and bogged down, causing even the commander of the army, Sisera, this big, bold character, To flee on foot like a coward. Well, for the Hebrew Church, they could look at the prestige and the wealth and the power of Rome, and little did they know Rome was already crumbling. We have history books; we can look back and see that it was their their stature, their their bigness, their their prestige, their renown was ultimately the cause of their fall. They didn't know that at the time. The Hebrew Church could look at this story though and say, okay. We know that God's kingdom stands, and we know that even the most powerful in those um, powerful kingdoms, our enemy's strength can prove to be their weakness. Things were already in place, and Rome was already crumbling. Rome would fall while the church pressed on. Today, the church continues to meet throughout the world. Today, the Roman Empire is of no concern to anybody, it's a tourist attraction. For us today when we see things from our enemies that would intimidate us and things from our enemies that would cause us fear, it's good to to simply remember God caused the iron chariots to bog down. God brought a torrent from the Kishon. He is sovereign even over what our enemies may view as their greatest strength. So we have enemies that have great strengths that they're proud of, that they try to capitalize on, that they try to make you feel weak in. And God is sovereign over even our enemy's greatest strengths, and sometimes our enemy's strength will prove to be their weakness in the long run. The fifth thing is about the attitude of the warrior. It's about the character and the perspective and the attitude of the warrior. The thing that we see here that is commendable for the Hebrew church and for us is that a good warrior knows that the battle is bigger than himself. This was hard for me to put my finger on. It took work, but I want us to work together with it. Look at Judges 4, 8 through 9. This is what I've already noted as as a weaker moment for Barak. Barak, here in 4, 8, said to Deborah, If you'll go with me, I'll go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. I wouldn't call that his shining moment. I wouldn't make that the big part of the photograph. But it's interesting what happens in the next verse. It says, and she said... I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. But he went. He knew it wasn't about his glory. F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary, says, and when he was told by her that the expedition which he was undertaking would not be for his own honor, he let it nonetheless. It was not his own honor, but the triumph of Yahweh and the triumph of his people that he sought. This is a beautiful picture. It comes at an unexpected time in the story. But when he finds out from the prophetess who he already knows is a mouthpiece for God, so much so that he says, you got to come with me because if God's speaking through you, I want you right next to me. So much He knows that that's from the Lord. And when she says, it won't be for your glory... He hears it, he heeds it, and he moves forward to lead the army in victory anyway. For the Christian, I think this has much to do with having a generational perspective. I don't think this is a stretch. It may sound like it at first. But for the Christian, what we're talking about here, I think in large part, is having a generational perspective. What I mean is that for Christ's kingdom to move forward We must battle daily to disciple our children and not turn from faith ourselves, knowing that one day there won't be any more battling, for Christ shall return. See, for the Hebrew church, this would mean that they press forward in faith, seeing God's kingdom is bigger than Rome. The Hebrew church would have to press forward in faith and see that God's kingdom is bigger than Judaism, and the, the Hebrew church would have to push forward in faith and see that God's kingdom is bigger than themselves. For us, I think this means dying to ourselves daily, that in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work, in our finances, that we live to the one true God and we aim to put His glory on display not our own. I think it also means that we're a people who are about a battle, and it's a battle that includes the command, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a battle that includes commands in Isaiah that says, pour yourself out for the afflicted and help the hungry, and when you do so, that, that, that darkness that you have in your life will be turned to light. We are designed to be warriors in a battle who are well aware that it's bigger than us. It's even bigger than... Our church, it's bigger than the people in this room. We need to have a generational perspective knowing that the only way, the same thing the Hebrew church would know, the only way the kingdom of God moves forward is if we know this is bigger than just ourselves and we're looking to those outside and trying to encourage them and we're especially looking to our children and making sure we are raising them up in the faith knowing that God has made mom and dad the main disciple makers in the lives of their own children. It's bigger than ourselves. The sixth thing, is a very sober thing, I think. In that moment, when you feel like faith is impossible and you are at the end of your rope, those moments where you genuinely feel brought to the end of yourself, I don't know if everyone in here has experienced that. Some of you may have experienced it to a significant measure. Some of you, it may be something you focus, you find later, and you need to recall this text in this moment. But those moments where you feel genuinely brought to the end of yourself, those moments where you're almost convinced that whatever it is you're in is just not going to work out, it's in those moments of desperation, those moments of being very aware of your weakness, where you may actually be most ready for the strength of God to give you victory. I'm talking about weakness, I'm not talking about sin. were to put sin to death and we would never boast in our sin. We do boast in our weakness. I'm talking about weakness. Gideon showed weakness in his movement. He was not God. He was Gideon. Barak expressed weakness in his movement. He was not God. He was Barak. A.W. Pink in his commentary states, the servant of God must first be made to feel his weakness before he is taught that all sufficient strength is available to him in the Lord. Man, that's so counterintuitive to a lot of us. It's certainly counterintuitive to our culture, but a lot of us are like, God, I think I'll be better at doing what you tell me to do if you take away the weakness, right? Like, I I oversee staff here, and I don't generally hire someone and try to pair them to a task that is equated to their weakness. We don't take tests to find out what our weaknesses are. We try to capitalize on strengths, right? We try to capitalize on, well, this is the area where you're strong, why don't you serve in this area? This is the area where you succeed, and you have succeeded before, and you've shown some great strengths, let's put you right there, and God's saying, how about right there where you're feeling as weak as you have ever felt? That moment of weakness, that may be the moment where you're finally ready, finally ready for the strength of God to give you victory goes on to say, the saint's might is in realized helplessness. Have you realized your helplessness? For when I am weak, then I am strong, as it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. He goes on to say, that word of Jehovah's was designed to bring Barak to the consciousness of his own utter inability to deliver Israel from the yoke of the Canaanites. The warrior's might consisted in conscious weakness, I've already mentioned Second Corinthians. I want you to go ahead and turn there. Second Corinthians 10, or 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 through 10. To me, as I was going through this, I found this to be a surprise encouragement. As I was preparing the sermon, I was really bothered by it at first. I wasn't sure how to handle it. but I found it to be a significant encouragement. Second Corinthians 12. It's a satellite verse for our sermon, verses 9 through 10. This is the part of Paul's story where he explains that he has a thorn that is put into his side by God. A thorn, it's, it's metaphorical, um, and, and it, it illustrates this thing that God has given him that he can't overcome. He can't get past it. And, and it's in fact referred to as a messenger of Satan to harass him, and it, and it keeps him from being too conceited. And it causes him to boast in the strength of God. So this is how he explains it in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, but he said to me, God responds. He says, God, take the thorn away. I don't like the weakness. I don't want it. I'm tired of dealing with it. I don't want to be in this situation anymore. He cries out to God in desperation. And God responds to him in verse 9 and says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, look at what he's content with. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, persecutions, calamities for when I'm weak, then I am strong." Some of us should probably be very convicted as we read that because we realize we are not content with such things. In fact, discontentment can overwhelm us in much smaller areas. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book in the 1600s called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment and in it, I've shared this illustration before. He says some of us are like an, a nice, shiny leather shoe. We're on the outside, nice, shiny. It all looks right, but on the inside, it pinches the flesh. And he says that your voice, according to Psalm sixty-two, has a your soul has a voice that. God hears, and while we may be all smiles and glad handing on a Sunday morning or a church gathering, inside your soul's voice is vexing and fretting and complaining and utterly discontent because you think things need to be better. And some of us need to be very convicted, and we need to move in repentance when we read, I was content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, a lot of times, that's when we think we're doing something wrong. Oh, man, things, things are going perfect. But what did I do? I mean, imagine a person in a, in a foreign prison because of their faith. Are they sitting there saying, oh, man, I should have kept my mouth shut? Or are they saying, I'm content with calamity like this, with a total crazy situation like this that I have no control over? Content with weaknesses. This is the strength that the Hebrew church should be looking for, and this is the strength that we're looking for, the strength that gives us victory, the strength that is found in situations where we are weak. I wanted to understand that word weakness a little more, and I looked it up, and the original language indicates an infirmity or a malady of mind or body. Do you have perfect control over the health of your mind and body? Sometimes there's things we don't have control over. Sometimes there's things we have to work on that we don't actually have control over it. A strength, or it includes an infirmity or malady of mind or body. It also includes in the list insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For the Hebrew church, this would have come in many different forms. So my question for you this morning is, where might God's strength be made perfect in your weakness? It happened for Gideon, it happened for Barak. It wasn't until they were at the end of themselves that God gave them victory in that battle and gave them a significant season of peace and rest. Where in your life might God's strength be made perfect in weakness? So let me offer up a few possibilities. Maybe it's a job where you don't see the, end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel. It's a job where you're going every day for the most part of the day where you are awake, away from your children, away from your wife, and maybe it's a job where you're just miserable. Maybe as we're brought to the end of ourselves and we truly feel weak and unable to do any more, maybe it's a marriage that seems too broken to ever be fixed and be made whole again. Maybe it's a disease or health issue that keeps you from performing as you wish you would, a disease or a health issue that makes you feel like a liability to those who are depending on you. Maybe it's a relationship with one of your children that seems like it's always been a downward spiral. Maybe it's imprisonment. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Someone who you can't feel like you could ever move on because you miss him so much. You're brought to the end of yourself in this thing. Maybe it's insults. Maybe it's hardships. Maybe it's persecution for your faith. Maybe it's a season of life that's just sort of a when it rains, it pours kind of season. Whatever it is that's bringing you to the end of yourself, it's a reality that reveals you're not God. And there is one true God, only one true God who could possibly exercise strength for you because you're just so done because you're so at the end of your rope. I urge you not to hide your weakness. I urge you not to just be frustrated with your weakness. I I think that's that's a big part of the way we move is we have a situation that we just can't get any power over. We have something wrong with ourselves, something wrong with our marriage, something wrong with our relationships, and we just get to this point and we just kind of sit and we're just frustrated. We're like, man, I can't do anything about it. When you get to that point where you're saying, finally, I don't think there's anything else I can do about this, that's a moment of desperation, a moment where God is making you aware that you're not God and that he is. So I encourage you to not hide your weakness and not just be frustrated with it, but to cry out to God from the middle of your mess and ask him for the strength and the grace that he promises. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. You may be thinking, no, get me out of the situation. That's sufficient. That's sufficient take away the weakness. That's sufficient. He says, no, no, no. Me giving you what you don't deserve is sufficient. You have a borrowed breath. Trust me with it, and I will move you along. I will give you encouragement, and I will give you victory where you cannot earn victory on your own. The final thing is what we'll consider for our supper, and you may have guessed it because I think the The big culmination of every sermon is the part about Jesus, right? (laughs) So here, the final thing is, is the importance of trusting King Jesus. It's the importance of trusting King Jesus. Turn to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. We're going to this text because this is a prophet who spoke of things that had been and spoke of things that will be, and a lot of times it's from those prophets where we can gain a lot, of, a lot of perspective as we are called to look backwards and to look forwards in our movement of faith. And so as we prepare to take the supper, I want us to see the importance of trusting King Jesus, and I want us to take all that, all that maybe has been spurred in your minds this morning, whether it's the condition of uh, at work or, or family or parenting or loss, or whatever it is that makes you feel like you're at the end of of, of yourself, and what I want you to do is I want you to read the great reality that is sort of this umbrella that covers all of these circumstances where we are weak, that covers all these circumstances where we are not God, and I think it's a beautiful encouragement that Jeremiah gives us in chapter 23, verses 3 through 5. He says, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and I'm going to bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed neither shall any be missing declares the Lord behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land." This should be a huge encouragement, Christian brothers and sisters. All of these judges that we've considered in the hall of faith, we considered last week are just a foreshadowing of the kings, and each of the kings, at best, were but shadows of Christ, the king of kings. So as we take the supper this morning, what we're doing is this. We express that we've come to the end of ourselves. We're expressing that we've come to the end of ourselves. We don't think that we can figure out most of it and that we need Jesus for the last 20%. We've come to the end of ourselves. And in that, we express specific hope in the coming king that Jeremiah prophesies here, who will return to gather his people who will provide for them in ways that have never previously been experienced. I want you to see all 40 years of peace and rest. You might be thinking, man, that sounds great. I'll take it. 40 years of peace and rest. As others have tasted of the goodness of God in the supper, we taste of the goodness of God in the supper. And while the Israelites receive 40 years of freedom and peace, we know that an eternity of freedom and peace and blessing and presence of our great God is what awaits his children. We are a blessed people. We are among the most blessed who have ever walked the face of the earth. When you're at the end of yourself, you are ready to have the strength of God give you victory. And in the supper, we're expressing we're at the end of ourselves and we desperately want Jesus because he's the only one who can give us what we need. You notice with the judges and the kings, they were frail. They were common. They were fragile. There's been a frustration as we go through this because I kind of get tired of saying, well, I guess the moral of the story is He uses the foolish to confound the wise, again and again and again and again. But there's a beauty in realizing that when you are foolish, when you are weak, when you are wanting, when you are not able to take care of all of it yourself, there's a strength from God that proves victorious. And for us, that should be an encouragement. Let's pray. Lord, I feel like we could spend more time this morning considering Deborah, and I feel like we could spend more time this morning considering Jael, Um, but I'm really thankful, Lord, that you gave us this picture of Barak, because in looking at this faith photograph of Barak, um, we see so many blessings. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of leadership we thank you for the blessing of causing any of us to actually move in a way where we offer ourselves to you. We thank you for realities of your sovereignty above the strength of our enemies and how even our enemies' strengths will prove to be their weakness. We're thankful, Lord, that you will sometimes call us to things that we're, where we have previously failed so we can learn to trust in, in your strength and your provision to give us victory. I'm thankful that you give us Christ as an example to know that this battle is bigger than ourselves, it's bigger than Rome, it's bigger than America, it's bigger than Judaism, it's bigger than anything, you name it, it's bigger than those things, and eternally, we will dwell with our great God. And I'm thankful that once we're at the end of ourselves, in our moment of greatest weakness, we may, in fact, find our greatest strength in Christ alone. Lord, I pray that wherever that leads people this morning, that hearts and minds would be stirred as we pass out the elements and that we would confess our sins to one another, we confess our sins to you, we would move in repentance and we would accept the amazing blessing that we have in Christ as our great high priest, a better judge, a better king, a better Gideon, a better Barak. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, our supper every week, it's a supper of remembrance, and it's a supper of anticipation. And so this morning I want to encourage you, remember how the Lord has always moved with his people, how He has always moved with his people, how He has always provided, how He has always heard our cries. But then I want to encourage you, as we take this supper, to be even more specific in your remembrance, and remember how he's moved with you. Remember where you were in your sin. Remember your moments where you felt very weak. Sometimes it is very important for us to remember very specifically what God has done because it helps us to persevere. It helps us to endure. It helps us to stand fast where we are knowing that he's brought us to that place. So that's the remembrance part. The anticipation part is, I want you to anticipate what God's going to do. I mean, as I said in Jeremiah, it's not just going to be this group of people who are gathered but every brother and sister from every nation every tribe every time will come together with a very very diverse and beautiful bride as a diverse and beautiful bride to eternally enjoy our Lord and so each week we have a small sampling of a somewhat diverse group that knows a lot of what God has done and a lot of what he's going to do And eternally, we will enjoy our Lord for such things as we dwell in his presence, sinless because of what Christ has done for us. In light of all that, take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, we are thankful uh, for, for your goodness. We're thankful for a love that we don't deserve. We're thankful for realities in our weakness that are found absolutely nowhere else. We're thankful for design and structure for leadership and people and movement um, and our view of those who set themselves against us. That Because of the finished and final work of Christ, we, we pray for our enemies. We seek to do good. We want to pray for those who persecute us. Um, All is an example of of Christ. Lord, let us be the kind of people that, that count the things of the world rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of our Lord. Lord, you are so good. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the text this morning. Pray that you would grow us in our faith, that we might offer ourselves willingly to you and glorify you and help others. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, My brother texted me this morning and um, encouraged me to have a good sermon, knowing that sabbatical was right after it. And I said, yes, the only thing that stands between me and that sabbatical is this 12-minute sermon I'm about to prepare. (laughs) So I went a little longer than I expected. Um, My my daughter, while I was working on the sermon yesterday, sitting there in the living room, I won't say which daughter because I don't want to embarrass her, she came up and was like, hey, at the end of the sermon tomorrow, you should say... So long, suckers. Let's go, Lindsay. And then just drop the mic in front of you. Um, and uh, so I considered that. Took it into account. Um, but uh, but I, I actually would love to just pray uh, for this body uh, as, as I go into this amazing blessing of a sabbatical. So if you all stand, I'd love to pray for you. Lord, I am in these last uh, few weeks, as we've studied the ups and downs of the faith of your people, uh, the ebb and flow of what seems to be a real strong focus on you, and then maybe eyes that wander elsewhere. As we see this cycle of um, a cycle that is just frustrating and so fleshly. Um, Lord, I I want to bless you and praise you for seeing in this body of believers people who offer themselves willingly to you. Lord, I don't... Everybody individually certainly has better days than others, moments where we're more faithful, but Lord, I am thankful that this body of believers is not marked by those extreme ups and downs and ebbs and flows, but I see this body of believers as marked by faithfulness. The character of this body, Lord, is as one who, who hears the word and does the word, one who heeds the warnings, one who walks in the instruction, one who takes joy in the encouragement. Lord, in 11 years of ministry, I have been so blessed by this body. The leadership of this body has led well. They have stepped up. They have delivered when you have asked them to deliver. They have gone to battle when you have asked them to go to battle. And it is a sweet encouragement to watch it play out with weak, fragile, common characters like ourselves. I'm thankful for people, a body that's characterized by not neglecting our children, but by being the main disciple makers in the lives of our children and by serving diligently on Wednesdays and Sundays in the nursery with our kids. I'm thankful for for a sanctuary, a worship center this morning, Lord, that is full of adults and children, families sitting side by side. My prayer, Lord, is that you would continue to bless this body abundantly, not just numerically, but bless us with the realities like what 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 you've shown us in the scriptures in the previous weeks and months. I pray that you would bless this body, that we might be faithful, that we might be truly a people who put God first in all things and that everything finds its place behind that. A people who are eager to spend and be spent gladly on the souls of your children. I pray that you would make this body a people who are eager to look not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. I pray that you would make this body a people who are aware of our weaknesses, and rather than complaining, vexing, and fretting, we trust you, and we humble ourselves before you, and we are eager to look for the strength that is made perfect in our weaknesses. Help us to be a people of faith, looking forward to a coming kingdom, knowing that it is more sure than anything we have ever seen or experienced. You are great. You are greatly to be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good Sunday.